uh, graduates. And I also bring you greetings from Christ United Reformed Church in Santee, where it's my privilege to serve as an associate pastor. Brother, we are so delighted that you and your family are out here. It's been an answer to our prayer. I'm sorry for our friends in Canada, um, but uh, it certainly is a blessing to us. And while we're on the Canada thing, Michelle and I stopped to get something to eat on the way up. And I am share Greg's concerns for you because while we're sitting there on the television was all Dodgers. And tonight is actually game five of the Stanley Cup. And Michelle and I were like, what are you doing? How can you not show game five of the Stanley Cup? But it was Dodgers all the time. So we will be praying for you along with the Canadians that you will not forget that hockey is indeed the coolest game on earth. But as we have this installation service tonight, I was reminded of another opportunity I had to preach the installation service of a friend. And their children actually thought that it was going to be like the coronation service from Frozen. And so they thought it was going to be a big village thing and all these uh, different critters and everything. So two of the children actually ended up crying during the midst of the service because they were so disappointed they thought it was going to be a coronation. And so hopefully we won't have any tears tonight. We're not going to coronate uh, Daniel as a, as a king. We are going to install him uh, as the minister of word and sacrament here at the church. It's interesting that uh, in the song that you sang, the church is one foundation. It says the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And that's really what we want to unpack in the passage that we're going to look at this evening. If you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first 16 verses of this passage. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you. We thank you that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. We thank you that you have brought the world into existence through your word and that you bring the church into existence and Christians into existence through your word as well. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your word. I pray that you would be with our brother, Reverend Ventura, in his new post here that you have called him to. We thank you that you have called him. We thank you that you have equipped him. We pray that you would give him everything that he needs to be faithful in this service. We pray that you would bless his work. We pray that you would be with him as he serves here and as he reaches out into the community. We pray that your kingdom would grow and that it would flourish and that your saints would be filled and nurtured and sanctified by you through word and sacrament and through your Holy Spirit. We pray now that you would help us to love you more dearly, to hear you more clearly, and follow you more nearly every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And let's hear now the word of God as it comes to us from Ephesians chapter 4. It says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient in bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then he will no longer be, we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, as we come to this passage, we hear this text about someone descending and then also ascending. And that's really the the center point of the passage is trying to highlight that the one who descended is also the one who ascended, and it's referring to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who descended from heaven and came down to humanity to bear the sins of his people. He actually was crucified, dead, buried, and then raised again on the third day and then ascended into heaven. And then from there he showers down gifts upon his bride. It's really meant to just gather this picture of him descending and then ascending, and he's the conquering hero. Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. Jesus Christ is the hero of history. Jesus Christ is the hero of scriptures. And he's really the one who has conquered all of our enemies. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. He came down to do that, and having accomplished that, he was the one who ascended, and then he showers down gifts upon the church. He's really giving the spoils of the war, the spoils of his conquest to his bride. This is really a passage of a bridal shower, if you will, where Jesus gives gifts to his bride. And we want to look at three gifts in particular that Jesus is showering down or giving to his bride. He gives her the gift of unity in the spirit. He gives her the gift of the ministry of the word. And he gives her the gift of fruitfulness in the spirit. He gives her these three things as the one who has conquered for us, the one who has conquered our enemies, and he's ruling and reigning in heaven now as the Lord of all, seated on high, interceding for us even now as we speak at the right hand of the Father, ensuring that everything that he accomplished for us on earth will be applied to us from heaven through his Holy Spirit. And so he gives his bride, he gives his church the gift of the unity of the Spirit, the gift of the ministry of the word, and the gift of the fruitfulness of the spirit. And those are the three things that we'll consider this evening. First, we want to remember that Jesus is himself the one who is giving these gifts to his bride. After he came and bought her with his own precious blood, for her life he died and rose again. And verse 3 says that he gives the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's remarkable to think about, 
The unity of the Spirit is really a gift that Jesus gives to his bride. It's not just a unity that the Spirit uh, gives, though it's true, but the Spirit himself is our unity. We are given the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to think about the reality that the third person of the Holy Spirit lives in us. The third person of the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's not just that he gives us gifts or makes unity a possibility. He is our unity. He is the one who unites us. We are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift that Christ gives to his church. We share this together. We share the uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit. We share the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We share the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is ours. We are united in the one Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And so before he, he mentioned the gift of the Spirit, he said, therefore walk in a manner, or uh, in, in the NIV, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Recognizing that you have been called to a newness of life. It's really a, a divine passive, a royal summons. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul had said we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by grace you have been saved. You have been raised to a new, new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. We were worded into existence. We were worded into a new life by the Holy Spirit. We were regenerated. We were called. We were raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. It's new creation language. The same Father who spoke and used the Holy Spirit in creation to create the world is the same God who is creating the church, the, the new creation through Jesus Christ. And he does that, the Father does that in the Son through the Holy Spirit as he calls us, as he regenerates us, as he, as he sanctifies us, as he justifies us, as he purify, purifies us all through the word. It's amazing to think about the reality that God accomplishes things through speech and how important his speech is. But in typical Paul fashion, he often talks about things kind of like a tennis match. He talks about, here's who you are in Christ, and then here's what you do in Christ, and here's who you are in Christ, and here's what you do in Christ. He goes from encouraging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have to recognizing the basis for that unity or the basic for, for that calling is our unity, is our oneness. Paul lists seven ones, one baptism, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, um, one hope, and one God and Father of all. Seven things, really the, the number of completion. In other words, this is the perfect wedding gift that Christ can give to his bride. These seven things. We are one body. We are one family. We are united together. And Christ is a one-woman man. He only has one bride. He only has one wife. He only has one lover. And it is his church. And it's for her that he died. It's for her that he fights. It's her that he loves. It's her that he nourishes. It's her that he cares for and defends and cherishes. And he also, we talk about the one spirit. The Holy Spirit who we talked about is the one who is given to us. He is the Lord and giver of life. We confess in the Nicene Creed. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life, who unites us to Christ, who raises us from the dead. And we also have one hope, a hope that belongs to our calling. Interestingly, previously in Ephesians said that we, particularly Gentiles, we had no hope. We were outside of the covenant. We were without hope. But now he says we have one hope, Jew and Gentile together, slave and free, men and women, Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, we have one hope. 
And that hope is united to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We aren't hoping in ourselves. We aren't hoping in our works. We're not even hoping in our pastors. We're hoping in the one that our pastors point us to, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he has been crucified and he is risen and he is ascended and he is ruling and reigning even as we speak. And so we have one body, we have one spirit, we share one hope, and we have one Lord, Jesus. The one who descended and the one who is ascended, that one. And we have one faith. And that faith is founding on something objective and something real, something outside of us. The life, death, resurrection, uh, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These things happened in history. These things happened objectively. And we have hope because we know that he conquered. We have hope because we know that he lives. We have a faith that is anchored to something solid and something secure, and it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. We also recognize that we have one baptism. We have been baptized into one family through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then it says, finally, we have one God and Father of all. We're a family. We are brothers and sisters with our elder brother Jesus Christ uniting us to our Father. We just prayed together the Lord's Prayer. It's remarkable that we can call God our Father. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus can call God the Father his Father because he's been that from all of eternity. But what's remarkable is that we have the privilege and the right to be able to call God our Father because of Jesus Christ. He has made us at peace with him. He has reconciled us to him. Our sins are forgiven and we've been declared righteous and we have been adopted by the Holy Spirit and we are united to him now and forever and there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from his love. And so Paul is really highlighting here at the very beginning an embarrassment of riches that he gives to his church. This is for all the members of the church. All the members of the church receive our one body, our one, have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's not that some of us receive some of those gifts and some of us receive the others. He gives to his bride all of those things. In other words, he gives us everything. He gives us himself. Everything we need for faith and for life, he gives us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so then going back to the tennis match, since that's true, walk in a manner worthy of your calling or live in light of your calling. Live in light of the reality that you are not your own, that you belong to your Savior, Jesus Christ. That you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. You were dead in Adam, but now you're alive in Christ. You were in unrighteousness, but now you are declared righteous in Christ. It's amazing to realize the reality. None of these things are telling us to do this for an achievement. It's a gift from the bridegroom who loves us, and he just showers down this gift of life and this gift of faith upon his people. So then he talks about how we live in light of who we are, that we are one body, that we are one in the spirit, that we have one hope, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, then let's walk or live in humility and gentleness, he says first. It's a characteristic of not being overly impressed with oneself. Right? None of these things did we achieve on our own. What do we have that we didn't receive? Right? All of those things were gift given to us. They weren't things that we merited or things that we earned, but things that Christ 
things that Jesus, things that our lover, things that our bridegroom showered down upon us. So we of all people ought to be humble and gentle in our spirit and in the way that we live and the way that we go about doing things, recognizing that everything that we have ultimately comes to us from the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And that humility and that gentleness is also something that characterized our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, doesn't it? He humbled himself by even coming to take on humanity, to endure the penalty for our sin, to endure the wrath that rested against us, to endure that for us. In the scriptures, Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. It's the only place where Jesus himself describes his own uh, emotions in that sense. Other passages of scripture describe them of Jesus for us, but Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come, come you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And so as he gives the gift to his bride, as he gives the gift to the church, part of becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that we too would walk in that humility and that we would walk in that gentleness. And again, those are fruits of the Spirit, aren't they? These aren't achievements. That's why it's so important to recognize the very beginning he said that it's the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit himself is given to us. He's the one who causes us to walk in the humility and gentleness that characterize our Lord and Savior Jesus. It also says to walk not only in humility and gentleness, but in patience, bearing with one another in love. This is really a state of being able to bear up under provocations and forbearance, one theologian said. The ability to withstand pain and trials or injustices. It's easy to get along with those who we like, isn't it? But what about the prickly pears in our midst? If you haven't figured it out yet, there's going to be some people in the church that are easier to get along with than other people in the church. But he had already wanted to remind us that we are one body. We have one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one Father. And so he wants to, us to recognize we're going to need patience. We're going to need to bear with one another in love. We're not who we were in our trespasses and sins, but we're not who we're yet going to be in glory. And so we recognize that, that there's this ongoing progressive sanctification. There's this ongoing reality of us being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And so he's calling us to walk and to live in patience, bearing up with one another in love, which is patient and kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. It doesn't keep record of wrongs. Those are, the patience is also a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's part of what he gives to us. And third, he says that we are to walk or live in eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, the reality that we are already one and that you already belong to the Holy Spirit and that you are born again of him is something that we ought to be zealous and eager to maintain and to confess that faith together and to cherish that reality, guard it, and to keep it, to tend to it. We are to maintain it, meaning that it is a gift, it's an existing state, it's a reality already. We are to preserve it and to honor it and celebrate it and manifest it. We don't have to create it. 
I'm not telling you to try to create or manufacture some unity. I'm saying you have the unity. You have the Holy Spirit. And now he's calling us to be eager and zealous to maintain that, to manifest that, to show that forth in your congregation amidst the trials and the difficulties that will inevitably come. And, of course, as we face a hostile world as well. And this isn't some nebulous unity where you kind of get along and seek to be nice to one another, which I hope you do as well, but a unity in the person and work of the Holy Spirit whom we share. We share the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the third person of the Holy Trinity. And so these things really mark the reality of what Christ has given to his bride, what he's given to the church. He has given her the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who brings about all of these things in the life of the church. But the second gift that Jesus showers down upon his bride is the gift of ministers or the ministry. He gives gifts to each and every one of us, which we're going to talk about in our third point, but in particular, it says that he gives certain gifts to the church. We must see that Jesus specifically gives certain gifts to certain people, and then these people he gives to the church to nourish her and to provide for her and to protect her and to teach her and to serve her and to guard her and to lead her and to love her. And one of those people is Reverend Ventura. And one of those people is Reverend Kern. These gifts that are mentioned here from the Ascended Savior are word gifts apostles. They are meaning sent ones. It's used kind of here in a technical sense. They, along with the prophets, laid the foundation work for the church, the apostles and the prophets, and they are the ones who wrote and gave us scripture. And then he also gave evangelists, which really means good newsers. They're modern-day missionaries. This is one of the things that we're installing Reverend Ventura to do. Daniel, be a good newser. Tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. I know you will. You do this constantly. You've been called to this. You've been called here because of your gifts and ability to do that that have been recognized. I encourage you to keep on in that, brother. And certainly you will do that from that, this pulpit, but it doesn't stop at the doors of the church. You're called to take this to the community and take this elsewhere as well. Tell people about Jesus Christ. You are a good newser. You are an evangelist. And do the work of an evangelist, brother. And then it says Jesus not only gives apostles, prophets, and evangelists, but shepherds and teachers, or pastors, if you will. It's clearly intended to be ongoing for the life of the church until the king comes. And so what is the gift that Christ gives to his church? Daniel. (laughs) Daniel is a gift. Reverend Ventura is a gift given to you by Christ himself. And Daniel is called to model the good shepherd. Not in the sense that Daniel can pay the penalty for your sins, but that he can point you to the one who did, and that he can have that same attitude of being willing to lay down his life for you, to care for you, to love you, to protect you, to serve you, to seek you when you are wandering, to find you, to help bind you, to correct you when needed, to lead you when needed, to care for you, if so need to be, to put you on his shoulders and take you to where you can get help. The same kind of love 
and humility and service that Christ showed, we do in his name for him as well. And so, brother, I encourage you to love the sheep. They are beloved by God. They are loved by Jesus. They are his. They aren't your sheep. They're Christ's sheep. And he loves them so much that he died for them. He loves them so much that he shed his blood for them. And he's entrusting them to you, and he's entrusting them to the elders and deacons here. He's trusting them to Reverend Kern here. Again, not that you would save them, but that you would point them to the Savior, that you would point them to Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Jesus three times asked Peter, do you love me? And when he replied yes, he said, then feed my sheep, tend to them. How do you show love for Christ? How do you show love for the sheep? By feeding them, by telling them the truth, by tending to them, by shepherding them, by caring for them, by being patient with them, by being long-suffering with them, by continuing to pour your life into, into them. Tell them the truth about Jesus. Tell them the truth about themselves. Tell them the truth about the world that is and the world that is to come. Love them and serve them. Not for God's favor, brother, but from God's favor. Not for God's calling, but from God's calling. You've been called to this. You've been gifted to this. And so love and serve the sheep because they belong to him and because he loves them and because he loves you. And so he's giving you, beloved, Daniel as a gift. Now, Brooke can tell you he's one of the most perfect gifts ever, right? If you expect Daniel to be perfect, you're going to be disappointed. But he's a gift. He's a gift given by Christ to you. And the purpose of his ministry, the purpose of the ministry of the word is to equip the saints, to prepare the saints. It's the ministry of the word for building up the body of Christ. In other words, God accomplishes things through speech. Jesus accomplishes things through speech. And so you are worded from beginning to end as Christians. And so Reverend Ventura is someone who's called to speak the word. And through God's word, things happen. Things are accomplished. He calls us. He regenerates us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us by the word through the Holy Spirit. He's constantly doing things through his speech. And God could do those things directly, but he does them indirectly. He does them through his ministers. He does them through his servants. And so the service that he has called Reverend Ventura has done is for your good and for the good of the kingdom and for the good of this local congregation and for the good of the community and for God's glory. It's remarkable to think about the extraordinary things that God does through ordinary means. Right? If you're expecting a coronation from Frozen today, you're going to be disappointed. But if you recognize that you're going to be given a minister who is going to love you and who is going to serve you and who is going to tell you the truth and placard before you Christ, then you're blessed. This ordinary means is something that God does to accomplish extraordinary things by saving you and preserving you in the faith and sanctifying you and conforming you more and more to the image of Jesus and showing to a lost and dying world what it is that he has done. And so here we see that the pastors serve the congregation. Actually serve him, serve you, Christ, through word and through sacrament. And the congregation so fed and so served 
loves one another and serves one another. You see the generosity of Christ? You see the generosity of God that he serves us and through that serving we serve one another and that serves and glorifies him and it's just this cycle of giving and generosity and grace upon grace as he serves us. Before we are called to serve, he serves us. And so each week, on the first day of the week, you're going to be gathered in to be reminded again of God's unfathomable love for you through Jesus Christ, through word and sacrament. You're going to hear and see and taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he's going to send you out to your various vocations, to your various callings, to be his servants in all kinds of different capacities that he has gifted you to and called you to as you minister to and serve in the community and one another as well. Before you are called to serve, he serves you. And then you serve him by doing those things. And it just is this marvelous reciprocal economy of grace and kindness and love. The simple point to this is that Jesus, as the husband of the church, who died for his bride and lives in glory to serve her, gives the ministry of the word and sacraments to his church, along with shepherds and teachers, pastors, to protect her for her peace, for her preservation, for her growth, and for her unity. And he does all of this because he loves her. And then finally, not only does Jesus shower down the gift of the unity of the Spirit on his church, not only does God sh Jesus shower down the gift of the ministry of the Word on his church, but Jesus gives his bride the gift of fruitfulness through the Holy Spirit. Note what it says in verse 13. What is the purposes of Jesus' Word and Spirit that he gives to the church? That we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of man, that we mature to manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He was just focusing on a few people with a particular gifts for the church, but now he's recognizing, hey, the gifts are for all of us. Till we all attain the unity, we all grow in maturity in Christ. We all are given gifts. We all are given the seven gifts that we talked about before. Earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul had said, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's creating one new humanity in his church. And this congregation is a part of that larger body that God is calling and creating one new man in Jesus Christ to maturity. In verse 14 it says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and human schemes. Note all the we's here that we all attain to the unity of the faith, that we all are mature in manhood, that we all may no longer be children. In other words, no one is left behind. We all are recipients of God's grace and God's gift. In verse 7, he had said, each one of us is given grace. No one misses out on God's bounty. Grace given to serve, grace given to love, grace given to believe even. The fullness 
There's nothing stingy about God. It says that it's according to the measure of his grace. We all share in one body, so there's a unity there, but each one of us functions in a different way, a diversity. We all have different gifts. Beloved, I don't know what your particular gift is, but it is needed in the life of this congregation. God has called you and equipped you and put you here for a particular reason, to serve, to come alongside your brothers and sisters, to come alongside your pastors, to come alongside in your community in one way or another. You have been gifted. You have been called. You have been equipped. And it's so beautiful when these are manifested and working together. You, beloved, are meant by Jesus to be a gift to the rest of the congregation. You're a gift. Look around you. God has given you one another. You are gifts by the ascended Savior given to one another. We're not merely passive recipients, but we're active participants. We are truthers and we are lovers, if you will. In verses 15, it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Growth is comprehensive. Growth in Christ in every way. Growth in our faith, growth in our knowledge, growth in our unity, but especially in this context, love. Because love is really the fulfillment of the law. Love is the expression of God himself. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Right? Why? Because it's the one that's eternal. It's the one that will continue. Your faith will be turned to sight when Christ returns and you see him. Your hope will be turned to sight when you see him, when Christ returns. But love will continue. And already now you are loved by God beyond your wildest imaginations. There's nothing in all of creation that could ever separate you from the love of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And so you're not trying to earn God's favor. You're not saying, if I love him enough, he'll love me. He loves you. And now you're free to love. You're free to serve. You're called to love. You're called to serve one another and to tell them the truth. Speak the truth to one another. Rather than deceiving and being deceived, we are built up in the truth for the benefit of the whole truth, of the whole group. And not just the truth in general, but the truth about God's word. We want to speak the gospel into one another's life. We want to apply the law to our lives in a right and wise way. We want to inculcate the wisdom of scriptures in our life. We want to be steeped in the word of God as we share it with one another, as we speak the truth to one another in love. We're truth tellers, we're lovers, because that's who God has made us to be, because that's who Jesus is. He is a truth speaker, he is a lover, and so those who are made in his image, so are we. So are we, beloved. And so we hear in this passage how Jesus has showered down these gifts upon his bride. He showered down upon us the unity of the Spirit. He showered down upon us the gifts of the ministry of the Word and ministers of the Word. And he showered down upon us fruitfulness 
as we are conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, and as we bear that same Holy Spirit that created the world, that same Holy Spirit who was with Jesus during all of his trials and tribulations and during all of his miracles, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus poured out at Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit who has been given to you and dwells in you and makes you one and makes us one. And we share together in his anointing, in his gifting, in his calling, and in the opportunities to serve one another and to reach this community here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, you are part of this. You are called to this by God. Jesus is calling you to walk, to live, to love in light of the new reality, humbly, gently, gently, lovingly, patiently, bearing with one another and guarding the unity that you share. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all by the grace given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In summary, we could say this is, the goal of all this is that God would be glorified. The motive of this is because God loves us. And the standard or the means of all this is through God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray. And I'd actually like to pray the prayer that Paul prayed right before the passage that we read. So the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians has this prayer. It says this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's children said, Amen. Beloved, please stay.